This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem in Victoria and the fascinating people and stories that make it tick. Peter Norden has spent over 30 years working in our criminal justice system. A significant portion of that time has been spent in and around our prisons, including seven years as the Catholic chaplain of Pentridge. Peter has also studied and visited prison systems all over the world to investigate how our model evolved and what we could be doing differently. In the early days of his life in the law, Peter worked closely with youth in detention and identified a distinct lack of support for young people coming out of jail. So in the 70s, along with a dedicated team, he established a small halfway house in Hawthorne, which would grow to become the Brosnan Centre, still going strong today. But if you just come in and you're a bit distant, particularly an alienated young person, been through the welfare system, they'd seen so many social workers in their lives. So when I'd go to a place like Malmesbury or Langenkelkel, I'd rock up about 10 in the morning, see the superintendent, interview two or three guys in a, in a room, but then I'd uh, move around uh, the work sections, education, you know, panel beating, whatever it was. And then when the, the lads knocked off work at about four o'clock, I'd still be around, uh, have a dinner with them about five, 5.30, sit around, have a smoke and a cigarette. I wouldn't leave Marmesbury until eight or nine. Uh, and that was the best time of the day. Uh, because they knew you didn't have to be there. Uh, but I knew that uh, sitting around at four, five, six and seven in Malmesbury or Langkelkel, informally, having a cup of coffee, having a cigarette, that was where the winning of trust was. Uh, and unless that occurred, uh, when someone came out, they would run absolute wild because they, they didn't have any uh, commitment to. Let's get a bit of background first. You grew up in suburban Melbourne, Hawthorne, a mother and father, and three sisters, I think? Two sisters. Two sisters. In the 50s and the 60s. That's right. Your dad was a carpenter and then a grocer, and colourfully, he was an SP bookmaker on occasions. Oh, just quietly. Just quietly. It was still illegal, whether it was quiet (laughs) or not. (laughs) And uh, uh, your mother helped him in that, although she was... uh, a woman of great faith who attended daily mass. So can you tell us a bit about that childhood, what it was like, and looking back on it now, how do you view that childhood? Yes, well, Hawthorne was a bit more diverse than it is now. We lived in the poor part, uh, which is hard to define these days. But mum worked in the grocer's shop and dad had another job early in the day delivering foodstuffs, Harding's crumpets and so on. So the phone would go, the old phone, you'd lift it up, and uh, it would be a grocery order and the next phone call would be, you know, uh, putting a bet on such and such a horse. But mum was at church every every day at 6.30 uh, down at the Jesuit Catholic Church in uh, just uh, near the station, Glenferry Station. But it was um, a simple life. Uh, I travelled into school in East Melbourne. St Pat's, most people think of uh, Ballarat, um, but there were four, St Pat's was one of the four first public schools in Victoria or in Melbourne. You had Melbourne Grammar, Wesley, Scotch and St Pat's East Melbourne. So St Pat's was on the very block of the cathedral. So I went in there at the age of nine till the age of 17. And that education led you on to joining the Jesuits yourself in 1968 after you'd done your matriculation? It sounds pretty unusual in this day and age, but it was not so unusual then. I think uh, having just turned 18, my choices were probably, I'd thought of the law, but I didn't know a lot about it at that time. Uh, for God, I thought of the military, I'm glad I didn't do that. Uh, and uh, But to join the priesthood, when you came from that sort of family and that sort of neighbourhood with that sort of background wasn't unusual. Uh, you know, 10% of the class would join the priesthood. So it's very different um, at times, but I was uh, 18, hadn't, uh, could have gone off to university, perhaps should have gone off to university then and had a broader experience, but uh, I uh, joined the Jesuits and started what was a 14-year training program. And in that 14-year training, I mean, we're, we're building up to your time as the chaplain at Pentridge Prison, but... I'm assuming that training over those 14 years helped to form you into the person 
who wanted to do work in the legal system with the prisoners. I'm wondering about that training you had with the Jesuits. Mm -hmm. What was it like? How did it form you in the way that you finished up being? Well, there was the formal training, Michael, and there was the informal training. The formal training was philosophy, theology. I did uh, two degrees at Melbourne University in arts and social work. But the informal training is what you did between times. And apart from playing a bit of university football, uh, I was doing volunteer work very early on with young people, became an honorary probation officer, I think, in about 1971 when I was 21. I uh, had uh, three or four young fellows from the Collingwood Flats. Uh, they'd come and see me up at Camping College, opposite Rohane, uh, as an honorary probation officer. And then started doing some more work at Tirana. I used to take Xavier Borders off to Tirana every Friday night for five years to play basketball. Tirana now called Melbourne Juvenile Justice Centre, but uh, based on the same place in Parkville. So from my very early 20s, I was uh, by chance quite heavily involved with young offenders and uh, young people in need. And uh, so I was exposed to a broader range of people than I would have otherwise been. Normally, young Jesuits start off as um, scholastics, I think is the, was the mm -hmm. term, and they were teachers in the Jesuit schools, mm. but you didn't do that. Well, I'd been studying social work uh, at Melbourne Uni and uh, I sussed out the possible interest from headmasters from the schools around Australia and they couldn't quite envisage how they'd use a Jesuit social worker. So I put up to the provincial proposal to start a halfway house because I'd been doing some volunteer work at a little hostel for young men leaving Pentridge and saw it wasn't particularly adequate. So uh, I put up a proposal as I was finishing my university studies. Now, at that time, in the early 70s, the Jesuits were probably a bit more lefty than they are these days. There was a, a strong emphasis on justice. Uh, during the 70s, there were about 50 Jesuits murdered throughout the world within the space of 10 years for their stand on uh, faith and justice. Uh, 50, you know, in El Salvador, all sorts of trouble spots, none in Australia, thankfully, but uh, maybe we're, we weren't dealing with the same critical issues as were occurring in other parts of the world. So the, the boss of the Jesuits, uh, the provincial, he wanted to find some way of putting flesh and bones on that idea, not just doing charity work, uh, but doing work for justice, cutting edge sort of stuff. So when this proposal came forward, he saw it as an opportunity of putting some flesh and bones onto this within the Australian context. And you were in your mid-twenties at the time. I was only 26, yeah, 27. And what led you to a halfway house? How did you see that as something worthwhile doing and appropriate? Well, I'd been visiting the uh, Melbourne Juvenile Justice Centre and, uh, and also I'd been visiting Pentridge uh, on Sunday mornings with the Vinnies uh, as a volunteer, St Vincent de Paul Society, uh, and I saw so many uh, young men and later young women uh, coming to the end of their sentence and really not knowing where they were going to go. And then they would be saying, ah, oh, like, for instance, at the Juvenile Justice Centre, hey, I'm getting out next week. And then I'd turn up next week with a group of basketballers and the boy, the young man would be there again. I said, I thought you were getting out. He said, I did. And he's back again. And there was just so many. Uh, a lot of those kids had graduated from the welfare system and they weren't criminals. They were just kids who, who, who broke the law, of course, but uh, they ended up, it was safer and more secure for them to return to a place like Parkville than to find a way on their own without family support, no income, few prospects of gaining employment. It's the same situation as now. It's probably twice as bad now as it was then. Uh, so it was pretty obvious, a very practical need. Uh, and so we started up in Power Street, Hawthorne, a big two-storey building that the Jesuits owned. And I had some two very good experienced uh, workers that we recruited and another Jesuit, Paul Khalil, who was a uh, Jesuit brother. Uh, so the four of us worked there and uh, started the halfway house. And then we moved a couple of times into a non-residential form. Uh, and uh, eventually I renamed the, the work the Brosnan Centre after Father Brosnan retired from the prison later on. And then it grew into what became known as Jesuit Social Services. 
So tell me, I, I'm a young guy coming out of prison. I'm 17 or 18. I've been charged with some what appears to be a relatively minor offence, but it looks like I'm going to stay on the path and offend again because I haven't got many options. But I finish up with you in the halfway house in Hawthorne. What did you do for me? Well, first of all, we'd um, make an effort of engaging that young person before he or she was released. So that meant, uh, you know, quite a lot of visiting over several months, not one or two interviews. And if you're only uh, a first-time offender, Michael, you probably wouldn't have been accepted for our program. The parole board, youth parole board, uh, was at Jim Forrest at that time and later Eugene Callity. Uh, you know, the officers of the youth parole board would say, we've got this young man, he's got a lot of prospects, you know, he's been in a little bit of trouble, and we'd say, sorry, we're not interested. Uh, we wanted to have uh, young men and later young women who had real needs, uh, substantial needs, who were repeat offenders, who were heading for the prospect of one or two or three decades of criminal behaviour. Peter, once you had um, chosen people to admit or allow into the halfway house, Brosnan House, Brosnan Centre, what did you then do with them? What did they do to um, bridge them over, get them back into the community as functioning members of our community? Mm. What were the programs? Well, we had um, one year had individual workers and then we'd have group meetings and some of them were like group therapy. Um, uh, Alex Thermager, who'd worked at um, Malmesbury as a group worker, was a very experienced fellow and uh, we'd have a group session, one, it was only once a week I think, but we'd call it if there was a critical incident and that would go for a couple of hours and it was very confronting around, you know, responsible behaviour uh, and the kids, you know, had to grow to live with one another but the, they were often very inadequate when they got out. They'd go to a, a, a pub for a counter meal or something and we'd realise I, I took a fellow out for dinner the other night who served a, a life sentence for murder and he's just turned 75. And when we went to this Italian restaurant last Sunday night, uh, he said to me, I'll have what you have. And I said, no, you, you choose. And he said, no, no, you, you choose. You know, it's your sh I, was, I was shouting him, it was his birthday. And uh, then I realised later he doesn't know how to read and he's 75 and he, and he spent 16 years in... Pentridge and other prisons for for murdering his partner, so they would we'd, we'd realise they had to do some basic uh, learning, and then the kids would end up with a huge pocketful or a bowl of coins. And I think why don't why they got so many coins? Because they couldn't even if they'd only been in prison for a year, they didn't have the confidence to go and get a packet of smokes and give the right money. So they'd always be giving if they had. The, the doll or whatever, they'd be giving $5 or $10 and they didn't have the confidence to negotiate the coins. So they had this huge pile of coins. So that was a sort of social competency that's taken away from someone after just 12 months inside. Now, if they were older and getting out after 10 years or 15 years, just imagine what's taken away from someone when they've lived in that physically, emotionally socially sterile environment of a prison uh, or dealing with family. You know, these kids often had families, but the families weren't prepared to have them because they knew what happened last time, the time before. So then we'd help them know how to negotiate with family because we were not going to be replacing family, even if they had the worst father in the world or they had a very dysfunctional um, home situation still their family. Of course, employment in the 70s, there were factories even in Hawthorne. Uh, but now, coming out of prison with a criminal record, Victoria is the only state in Australia that doesn't have a sunset clause on, on non-violent criminal convictions. Every other state and territory in Australia is moving in that direction, but Victoria is the only one. So if you get out of prison after a serious sentence in Victoria, you know, what are the options? Uh, building trade, the wharves, not so many jobs going there anymore, or the black market. So that's what we did with these young fellows, help them uh, towards employment. Uh, can I just, did they live there? Yes, well, initially they lived in the halfway house and we, that meant we were, you know, a lot of our effort was focused around 10 or 12 young people. After a few years, we decentralised, had a resource centre in Cambridge Street, Collingwood, and then had several houses in the inner suburbs 
and now the Brosnan Centre operates next to the Brunswick Baths uh, and does a similar thing. Doesn't have one big hostel because then you have all the institution games transferred across from the prison. Uh, we would simplify it, have one or two people living alone, maybe with a volunteer lead tenant, uh, and then supervise and they would drop in. The other th significant thing about working with these young people, just as you might spend three or six months building a relationship of trust and some motivation before they were released, uh, realising that it wasn't going to be a month's involvement or three months' involvement, it might sometimes have to be six months or 12 months. Now, the incredibly foolish thing about a lot of the government contracts these days for those agencies working with ex-prisoners it says you can only spend two hours a week with each person and you can only keep them on your caseload for three months. Uh, and it's so unrealistic uh, because it might work in the ideal world, two hours a week for three months might be good for 20%, but the other 80% might need much longer and more intensive involvement. Then at some stage become the chaplain at Pentridge Prison. Mm. How did that come about? Uh, well, uh, Father Brosnan, had, uh, he'd been appointed in 1956 and the younger generation may not know Father Brosnan, but he was the priest who was at Pentridge during the last hanging in Australia, 1967, that of Ronald Ryan. Uh, he was an absolute public figure in, in Victoria and Australia, very well known. He was the first priest ever to be given a state funeral when he died in the early uh, 2000s. Um, he'd been uh, looking for a replacement. He was, had been looking at a diocesan priest. He had, he had an assistant from time to time, but he decided that I was going to be the one. Uh, instead, the provincial decided that I wasn't going to be the one. So I was sent off to Riverview in Sydney as the chaplain for two years. So I went up there in 83 and 84 for two years, enjoyed it, but eventually the uh, Bros or the Archbishop's still knocking at the door. So finally, uh, Bros retired in 85 and I took over uh, at that time and I stayed there for seven years. And tell us a bit more about John Brosnan. I remember speaking to him one stage and him telling me that in his life he had never willingly missed... Sunday Mass or a Geelong football match. Or a Geelong home game. Exactly. That's right. He'd never missed a Geelong home game. And I used to go down to Geelong with him. He was the patron of Geelong. The other thing about Bros was uh, he uh, he was a teetotaler most of his life. And in very early days, he, was, he knew every footballer and every footballer knew him. But he was at some function uh, of the VFL in those days. And a young Kevin Murray, aged 19, came up to him and said, Father Brosnan, here's a beer for you. And Father Bros, who would have been 50, I suppose, at that time, said, Kevin, um, I don't drink. In fact, you know I don't drink. You know, I've never, never had a drink. He said, oh, come on, Father, won't do you any harm. And Father Bros said to Kevin Murray, aged 19 or 20, Kevin, when you win the Brownlow, I'll have a beer with you. So 10 years later or several years later, Kevin Murray wins the Brownlow and he comes up to some function and says to Bros, there's a glass of, uh, there's a pot of beer for you, Father. And the, he repeated the story, you know, I don't drink, Kevin. He said, you told me when I was in my first year that when I won the Brownlow, you'd have a beer. Uh, uh, but he, he was a very colourful person. And, uh, you know, when I'd go to Parliament House in Melbourne with him, uh, instead of him lining up to see the ministers, literally the ministers would line up in that reception area to say hello to him. Uh, it was a very unusual situation. Did he teach you about being a chaplain or how was he a chaplain it, yeah. in that situation and what did you learn from it? Uh, I learned from watching and observing, but styles are very different and he would uh, know that, but uh, he never gave instructions. Uh, I think it's a bit like a junior barrister and a senior barrister. You watch and you learn and observe etiquette and ways of approaching things. I absorbed a lot of things from him uh, and uh, learnt how uh, to avoid a few pitfalls along the way. Uh, but uh, no, our styles were different. Uh, he was uh, softly, softly. I was a bit more confronting in some ways with, to do with issues of uh, human rights or social justice. He had high media profile, but he wouldn't confront. He would uh, walk up to uh, the minister at the races and have a quiet word in his ear. Uh, it was probably more effective. So, Peter, you 
become the chaplain at Pentridge Prison. Pentridge conjures up images in my mind anyway of bluestone walls and dark and fearsome, gruesome, something built in the 19th century didn't change until uh, it was privatised and became apartments, I think now Pentridge might be. Mm-hmm. But there was, the, there was H Division, which was infamous, H people equated with hell. Mm. Please tell us about Pentridge. Can you paint us a picture of that, what it was like as a work environment, what it was like as a home environment mm. for the men who lived there, the prisoners? Well, I, when I was appointed in 85, I'd been in and out of the place for several years uh, in different roles as a volunteer with the Vinnies and then with the halfway house. So, I, And I knew a lot of the people who'd graduated from the juvenile justice centres. But it was a stark place, 85. It was probably no different in 1985 than it was in 1885. Uh, literally, there were a couple of new buildings that had been built in more recent years, like uh, J Division, which was dormitories for young offenders, where I spent a fair bit of time. Uh, but mostly it was like Dickensian England, uh, dark, uh, you know, locked up at four o'clock, uh, dinner at three, three thirty in the afternoon. Uh, many people in solitary. Uh, every week I'd go to H Division on Wednesday mornings, and uh, and sometimes they'd say, "I want to see Billy Jones," and and the officer would come back and say, "Billy doesn't want to see you," with a smirk on the prison officer's face. So I said, "That's right." So I'd uh, see someone else and then I'd work out who was in Billy's yard, Fred Smith. So I'd say, I want to see Fred Smith. So Fred Smith had come up. How are you, Father Peter? I said, good. And we have a little chat. And I said, what happened to Billy? He doesn't want to see me. They didn't even know you were here. And I, so he'd go back to the yard and they'd be yelling out, Billy would be yelling, I want to see the Padre. I want to see the Padre. Well, they had to bring him and he's, he'd come with his face black and blue. He'd been bashed, the reception biff. So I'd be told, go and see Billy down H Division because he'd just gone down there yesterday after abusing an officer and, you know, it would be good to go and see him. Uh, so this was a regular reception for everyone who arrived in H Division. The big metal door would be closed, take off your clothes and the prisoner would be standing there absolutely naked with about several officers with batons all around uh, and uh, provocative behaviour. And if uh, the, and he'd be belted from the back with a baton, and if he lifted his elbow to defend himself, then there'd be six batons, and then as he hit the floor, the boots would come in. Now, this is not exaggeration, and this didn't happen to one or two. This happened to everyone, right through to 1996 when the prison closed. So it was a shocking place. Uh, when I first started, uh, you know, in the 70s, and then even when I started full-time as chaplain, there weren't too many professionals there. There were the uh, the prison officers in blue, the crims in green. Uh, there was a doctor, a psychiatrist, a couple of medical officers and a couple of welfare workers. So uh, there weren't a lot of professionally trained people in the place trying to deal with a com- complex human behaviour uh, with, uh, at that time, 50% of the Victorian prison population all within the space of, a, you know, several hundred square metres. Peter, you can be as well-intentioned as you like as a chaplain in a prison, but surely dealing with highly damaged people, very hardened and toughened, I guess, by their life experiences, how were you able to connect with them? How did you gain their trust so that you could actually work with them? Uh, Michael, I I knew a little bit about organisations and, uh, you know, I knew that in order to be effective, you had to uh, win the confidence of the top guys in the prison, as well as being concerned for those most vulnerable, the younger people who are often, you know, impacted by disability. So in that institution, I knew that whoever the people in the top of the pecking order in the criminal network, they they were important people for me to get to know and to win their confidence in order to be more effective and get around and do the other stuff. Uh, but the issue was you didn't want to be captured and also in the prison there's a lots of networks, call them gangs if you like, but someone would, they would want you to be part of their group and not part of someone else's group and that was tactically fairly complex and difficult so you had to be um, pretty shrewd not to be spending too much time with one particular group as against others. You mentioned that you worked in, in um, more modern prisons 
Is there a comparison to be drawn between our current prison system and the previous prison system with Pentridge at the apex of it? Well, look, the, the Crims used to say, uh, you know, don't pretend you know what prison's like, Father, because you don't. You come in here at 8 o'clock and you leave at 4, and it's true. You know, it's very different to work in a prison, even if you're pretty much engaged with it uh, for set quite a few years. It's not the same as living the experience. Uh, but they'd also say, don't be fooled by modern buildings. Uh, but they did, uh, to be fair, the Department of Justice tried to get more training, more rehab programs in. But generally, though, in Australia, the prison officers uh, don't have university degrees. Uh, they do in other countries. Uh, and later I went to see other countries where the basic training for a prison officer would be a, a degree in behavioural uh, science. Uh, knowing how to deal with conflict, knowing how to resolve resolution. Uh, but so the prisons, are they any better now? I think they're worse because they're four times as many people, uh, four times the rate. In Victoria and Australia, for the, more than 10 years, the prison population's been increasing at four times the rate of the population growth, despite the fact that there's been no uh, a significant increase in serious crime over the last 10 years. So what the prison system's done over the last 10, 15 years in particular is drawn in people largely who are disabled, people who have got uh, issues of mental health, obviously drug and alcohol issues, but also people with intellectual disability. And if you look at the remand population in Victoria and throughout the country, about a third, over a third now, 34% of the prison population in Victoria people on remand. And a high proportion of those are women escaping from domestic violence. Now, they've committed a crime uh, to be uh, charged with an offence, but because they've got no stable accommodation, the magistrate's got no choice but to refuse bail, particularly with the tighter bail laws. So I think the system is worse now than it ever was because it's drawing in whole categories of people, broadly defined as disabled, who aren't serious criminals, who are not a physical danger to society, but at huge expense, close to 200000 for an adult and over $500,000 a year per inmate for a juvenile. Now, if they're a serious offender, fair enough, you know, the community needs protection. But I would say, and I gave a lecture in Sydney on this recently that's on ABC Big Ideas, uh, I would say that 80% of the Australian prison population doesn't need to be locked up because they pose no serious threat, physical threat to our society. And their needs would be much better dealt with elsewhere. But I asked this question of the Premier at a dinner this week. Uh, you know, if we're really trying to do good social planning and have social cohesion, what's it say that our prison population in Victoria and throughout Australia is increasing at four times the rate of the general population despite a lack of an increase in uh, serious crime? It's a very interesting question. Did the Premier have an answer for you? Well, it, I think he acknowledged that it's more complex than building uh, infrastructure. Infrastructure is terrific, uh, underground railways and level crossing removals. But to do good social planning when Melbourne's growing at 2% a year, much higher than the rest of the country, you've got to have real cooperation between all the different departments within Victoria and you have to have cooperation not just between the Victorian government and local councils, but more troublesome is the cooperation between the federal government and the state government. Uh, so it needs programs that are not three-year programs or four-year programs to deal with serious disadvantage, you've got to tackle that over periods of really about 10 years to 15 years. And so the electoral cycle doesn't make allowances for that. So I don't know whether we've got the capacity to deal with these real problems and create communities that are livable and affordable. William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist, one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers lists in Australia. Greens List believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community. Just to head back to um, your role as the chaplain at Pentridge and other prisons, 
you've used the phrase that you need to be a priest, a pastor and a prophet. Could you explain that to me, please? Uh, well, yes, I, I, it's hard. People think, what would a chaplain do in a prison? Well, you, you have to have a Sunday service or something or you might hear confessions occasionally. That's the priest side of it, if you like, the sacramental, the liturgical side. For those who are familiar with the Christian religions, there's other sides as well. There's the pastoral side. So that means that you're engaged in every part of the life of the prison. If there was a footy game on, you'd be there. If you were, you'd wander through the education or the employment sections, you'd go into the visit area without intruding on privacy. Uh, so you'd wander there. This was, if you like, my parish. Uh, and so you weren't there just to do the formal religious things. Uh, you were engaged in the life of the community in all different respects. And then there was the prophetic side. Uh, which uh, for me, I mean, uh, when you see something that's wrong, you call it out. And I think I don't hear those voices of the churches anymore around Australia calling out the injustices of the criminal justice system. Does that mean that they're not as intense anymore? I doubt it. Uh, I think in some ways uh, the voice of the chaplain needs to be louder in that prophetic way not necessarily in a confronting way, but in uh, not prepared to see, uh, you know, a neglect of human rights um, uh, or injustice. I think there's obviously a critical role for the legal profession in civil action, and this is how a lot of changes have occurred in the United States, particularly in progressive states like California, that lawyers have taken civil action over overcrowding and issues like that. But uh, with respect to the church, I think the church has probably lost a lot of confidence in Australia over the last couple of decades and is probably not capable of uh, fulfilling the same role. Mm -hmm. In that prophetic role, I believe you try to bring politicians and members of the legal system mm. into prisons, not in their professional role where they would go there as a lawyer and interview a client, et cetera, but put them in there almost as an observer, a, um, an observer who was, uh, people weren't aware they were lawyers mm. and therefore they could get a better look at prison life. Mm. How did you go about that? <laughs> well, Michael, you know, most uh, people I knew in the legal profession would say to me when I was working there in the 80s, Oh, you know, I've been to Pentridge many times, you know, I've had a lot of clients there. And actually, I went out there, you know, as a magistrate with a group of other magistrates, and uh, I'd, I've been there with the judges. And, and I'd say to them, you know, perhaps over a meal, you don't realise what happens before you turn up for that visit. When the minister would go there, I'd say to the minister, Minister, do you know that they spent a week preparing for your visit to Pentridge? They had a hundred crims scrubbing the place, and and and, the, and when you came in, it had never been as clean for uh, several years, and the same with the judges to a lesser degree. So I would take just one uh, individually on a Saturday morning. I'd say, look, no golf on Saturday. Uh, instead, I won't name the judges. Some of them, are, most of them, retired now. Uh, but they'd come into the prison, and I wouldn't even tell the governor. I'd say, I've got a friend coming in. Uh, I'll vouch for him. I'm just going. To, he's going to be with me on Saturday morning visit. That's right. So I would come in with the judge, and I'd in D division, the remand division, probably the worst. Uh, and I'd say, um, just sit there. I've just got to do something for a couple of minutes. And I'd sit the judge without a name on the bench, and I'd uh, go down to another part of the division within eyesight, perhaps fifty hundred metres away. I'd keep an eye on him. And uh, I'd let and I and I'd wait 15, 20 minutes and, and just let him. It was most it was mostly male judges in those days. I think only male judges that I took in, uh, and he would absorb what was going on in the normal routine. And these were judges who, you know, obviously they have uh, judicial training and all sorts of things these days. Uh, but they were deciding whether to send someone down or not, whether to give him a six-month or a 12-month or a five-year or a 10-year or a 20-year or a 25-year without probably having a real direct sense of what the currency was. And I never failed afterwards as we drove home um, to hear from the judge. That was fascinating. It was very different having that experience than going in with a group of judges led around by the governor of the prison. Peter, a body called the Victorian Criminal Justice Coalition. Mm. You set it up. 
What was it and, and why did you set it up? Well, Mark, I, I finally finished working at the prisoner's chaplain in 1992 and there were so many experiences that were sort of probably unreconciled within myself, things that I'd seen, observed, things that I felt needed fixing. Uh, at the time there was a lot of police shootings. There were more than a dozen people being killed by Victoria Police every year compared to one in New South Wales at the time. So the, I decided to set up this network, which we call the Victorian Criminal Justice Coalition. Had, in the end, over 60 members. Uh, there were lawyers involved. There were academics involved. People, criminologists were involved, psychologists. Um, the service groups that provided assistance to prisoners and their families were uh, represented. There were the uh, church justice groups, Catholic Anglican Uniting. Uh, so it was a network of 60. And the issues that we dealt with, the first one really was the proposal to introduce private prisons into Victoria. Uh, there was a big issue around the police shootings, as I mentioned. Uh, and uh, in later years, police high-speed pursuits. Now, we lost on private prisons. Uh, the issue, uh, you know, they got established and Victoria established quite a large proportion of its prisons is private. In fact, Victoria's got the highest rate of private prison cells in the world, much higher than the United States. Um, and uh, But with the police shootings, uh, in the beginning it was a group of armed robbers that were being shot by police um, rather than arrested. Uh, but then gradually the people being shot uh, were people not with a criminal record but with uh, uh, issues of mental health. Um, and in those days, after the Wall Street shooting and after the Russell Street bombing, there was a siege mentality with the Victoria Police. And at the training academy, some of the old armed robbery guys and the consorting guys got into training positions at the, um, at the Glen Waverley Training Academy. And the principle was if you're confronted with someone with a weapon, whether it be a, uh, a gun or a knife or a baseball bat or even a stick or a rock, you're to tell them to drop the weapon, drop the weapon. And if they refuse to follow your, uh, your uh, order, you empty the revolver to the central body of the person. You don't kill them. You just empty, you, you remove the threat to yourself as a police officer. And so this happened over a period of three or four years, about 50 times in Victoria, compared to New South Wales, three, three times maybe, equivalent or four. So... Um, I think as the people hitting the ground became people with mental illness rather than with a serious criminal record, the publicity uh, gathered and the pressure uh, got greater and greater. And there was the last one was a young Koori lady called Colleen Richmond. She'd been shot at Hanover Welfare Services in St Kilda and I did the funeral at Sacred Heart Church. And as we then marched down Fitzroy Street in protest uh, to Katani Gardens, the Deputy Premier, and who was then the Minister for Police, Pat McNamara, rang me on the mobile and he said, Peter, we've decided to, um, to retrain the police and to disarm them. Only those that need to carry weapons will carry weapons. So I announced that down at the Katani Gardens and it was on the seven, Channel 10 News at 5, it was on 7 and 9 at 6. But by the 7 o'clock news, the, pre, the police union had so lobbied Pat McNamara, the, the Deputy Premier, that he reversed his ruling on the disarming the police, but he proceeded with what was called Project Beacon, which was retraining the police around, you know, defence and protection of human life. So the Criminal Justice Coalition was very effective and very high profile at the time. It was the go-to organisation to comment on around issues to do with anything in the police, courts or prisons. As well as your hands-on lived experience of the prison system in Australia, Peter, You've also done study tours of prisons in the US, the UK, the Netherlands, Sweden. What did you learn from the trips? How does our system measure up against these other systems? Mm. Are there things we can learn from those systems and changes we should make? Mm. Be interested to hear your views on that. Well, yes, after three years full-time, I took a, uh, a short sabbatical and went to the United States where I had a fairly extensive um, study tour of 15 cities in 15 weeks. 
And I didn't just visit prisons, uh, but visited uh, law groups, uh, civil liberty groups, um, prison law officers, uh, and uh, had a very good look at the American prison system, uh, federal, state, and county, uh, at a time when it was about to make some incredibly bad moves around imprisoning more people. And so in 1988, there might have been half a million, three quarters of a million people in prison. In the next 10 years, they imprisoned another million. In the further 10 years, they imprisoned a further million people. Now, all the, uh, all the research shows that the first million people had some impact on street safety and so on, but the second million had no impact on criminal behaviour or street safety. It was just another huge proportion of the American population being imprisoned. But uh, the federal prisons were reasonable. They had more funding. The county jails were shocking. They were worse than anything I'd seen in Australia. Uh, they were similar to what I'd seen in uh, the Philippines. Uh, you know, in big cities like New York and Los Angeles, 10-storey uh, buildings, it was just dungeons in the sky, I think I uh, described them as at the time. Uh, and almost all African-Americans, and if they weren't African-Americans, Hispanic, hardly a white uh, American to be cited, certainly in the county jails, more in the federal prisons. Uh, but the criminal justice reformers that I met with in 1988 said, look, we're not going to use the argument of social justice and human rights in our discussions uh, with politicians or with the public anymore. We're going to just talk the dollar because it's obvious that our prison system throughout our country is increasing at an astronomical rate. Little did they know what was going to happen over the next 15, 20 years, keep going much, much higher. And we'll just talk the dollar because that will impact on policy people. It had no effect at all for over 15 years. And, but in more recent times, the pendulum swung back. Uh, and in the most conservative states like Texas, Florida, uh, Carolina, Louisiana, uh, the amount of money that was being, as they now recognise, wasted by imprisoning people who aren't a physical threat to the community uh, was down the drain. And that was money, as in Victoria, that would otherwise go to education, health, transport, the arts and so on. So in England, I went to America and England not to probably learn good ideas, but to understand what the hell, how did our system in Australia end up the way it was? So I also went to England because the trends came from America, but the history came from England. And in England, I had five weeks, uh, had some amazing experiences, much more conservative in terms of civil liberty than, than America. But there I met IRA people who were later released uh, into the community who'd been framed by police for serious bombings, uh, you know, went to prisons where, you know, solitary confinement was the norm for 80% of the community, locked up 23 hours a day. So going to England and, and America, I, I got a better understanding of, of what the hell we're doing in Australia and why we probably aren't so rational approaching what, what happens. A few years later, I had the opportunity of going to more progressive countries and I went to Holland and Sweden. And there, low imprisonment rates, low reoffending rates, equally importantly, uh, and uh, no big headlines in the newspapers when there was a serious crime. A rational, sensible, effective, successful way of dealing with criminal behaviour and come back to Australia, wrote about it, spoke to lots of people, and they say, oh, but we're different in Australia. We're not like the Swedes. We're not, we're not uh, like the, uh, the Dutch. Uh, we're not. Um, we want to impose punishments on people that aren't working, that cost a lot, that lead to reoffending, and we don't seem to care. For instance, I mean, the irrationality of changing the parole system in Victoria John Barry set up the parole system. We have a very serious offender, rapes and kills a journalist in, in Victoria, uh, and the, uh, the parole system's changed. So instead of giving support and supervision to someone who needs help when they're released, we only give that help to someone who doesn't need it when they're released. Uh, the parole board in Victoria was given twice, three times the resources that it had previously, which is a great achievement. 
but now if you pose a risk upon release, you don't get parole and you stay in prison for another year or two and then you're released without any supervision at all. The government doesn't wear the egg on its face that someone released on parole is re-offended seriously, but the community is twice as at risk as previously. But no one in the community seems to be jumping up and down about that. Uh, so, uh, and the same with, with bail laws. You have a serious offender who commits a serious offence on bail. There's substantial reform in the bail laws for everyone and as a consequence, women escaping from domestic violence who've got nowhere to live have to be refused bail by the magistrates. So this knee-jerk reaction and shaping criminal justice policy because of a serious incident, you know, is, is popular politically, but it's extremely expensive and it brings about very poor law reform. Do you have a view, Peter, on why... I, let's not pillory the politicians, we all like doing that. But I guess it's we as a community where the responsibility lies. Do you have a view on why we as a community, the ordinary Australian person, ordinary Victorian person, does not want our system to model the Netherlands system or the Swedish system, but wants a system which is about punishment and retribution? Why are we like that? Uh, it's something that's occupied my mind for quite a few decades, Michael, but I think about it particularly because of my church background. We have a very strong emphasis in Australian society around individual individual responsibility. And the, uh, the background of Christian faith means if you make a bad choice, you are then responsible and you face your punishment. Uh, whereas in places like Scandinavia, they don't have this strong emphasis on individuality it's more communal, more sociable. They don't have these heavy religious kind of values that for, in many ways exercise some positive contributions to our community. But the flip side is this uh, individual. You made a bad choice and therefore you be punished. Uh, most people who commit serious crime or any form of crime don't think about it. Uh, they're not rational like you and I sitting here doing this interview, um, thinking about things. They're impacted by uh, either intellectual disability, mental illness, or drugs and alcohol. Not a lot of rational thought. And this rational thought goes in about 10% of the prison community that I saw and worked with uh, really think the other way. Rational, criminal intent, how can we gain profit uh, by whatever it be, deception or robbery and so on. Less than 10%. So I think that's the difference between Australia uh, and a country like Sweden or, or Holland. Uh, they are different um, cultures, but I think we need to be more rational and we will, I think, eventually the pendulum will swing back in Australia saying prison must be used as a last resort and we need to redefine the prison again now as being there to deal with serious violent criminals who pose a real physical threat to our society. And you're confident that will come about? you think that we as a community will put the pressure back on our politicians to adopt that position? I don't see a lot of signs for it now, but uh, I gave a, a lecture in Sydney last year talking about prison abolition. And uh, I think, you know, there's a growing group of people who are more rational about this and don't want to see money wasted. People want to see money put into uh, health and education and transport and aged care. Uh, and into the arts. Uh, and I think gradually that pendulum will swing in Australia, but it needs uh, people to reflect about the issue rather than just be influenced by the, uh, the rogue media. So, Peter, to bring us up to uh, the present day, you're no longer a Jesuit priest, but you have, in the last few years, studied law and you're now a qualified lawyer. <laughs> Why did you do that and uh, what are you doing with yourself now? Well, when I left the church and the Jesuits in 2009, I was lucky I got a position at Melbourne University in the law school uh, from the Vice-Chancellor for three years. And so I was based there in the law school and I, you know, rubbed shoulders with a lot of people teaching law and sat in on a few lectures, gave a few guest lectures. I then taught at RMIT, mostly in the social science area for several years. Uh, and uh, now I'm at Deakin in an honorary role. 
But in the last couple of years, instead of doing crosswords to keep my mind busy, I decided I'd uh, do a master's in human rights law, which I completed at the city campus of Monash. So I did eight subjects. All the students are about the age of my, you know, granddaughter age. I'm a grandfather. Most of them are female doing these courses, more than male. I was amazed to see. Very um, hardworking and ambitious young uh, law students. And I managed to survive with a few distinctions here and there. But, uh, you know, I've been trained to think and to read and to articulate. So I had a lot of the skills of a lawyer, but uh, I can't write as a lawyer. I'm uh, three or four decades working as a, so- a social worker and social scientist means that I approach issues differently, but I've got some better understanding of legal thinking and systems. So uh, at Deakin, look, uh, I've used the experience of the past uh, in the last decade or so. I've been called upon to do several expert witness reports for the courts to do with high security prisons and deaths and mistreatment of particular prisoners. Um, I'm a marriage celebrant, um, so I enjoy doing a few weddings, not as many as I used to do. Um, uh, as a priest, I was doing about 70 a year. Now I do about 10 a year. Um, but, you know, the occasional guest talk, um, I put my foot in the water occasionally around policy issues. But look, frankly, I was doing that sort of thing 20 years ago. And whenever I get the opportunity, I talk about passing the baton to a younger generation of lawyers and social workers and civil liberty people. It's now someone else's responsibility to pick up these issues, different other organisations and run with it. So I'm enjoying only needing to come into the city two or three days a week uh, instead of uh, coming in five or six. Thank you for coming in today and giving us an absolutely fascinating insight into your life in the law. Thanks, Mike. Show notes from today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll find useful links, a transcript of the show and some wonderful shots of our guests. We're keen to know what you think, so please reach out via all the usual channels. Let us know the questions you'd like us to ask, topics you'd like explored, or ideas for future guests. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks and subscribe, rate and review the show. It really helps others find out about us. Our show is produced by me, Catherine Green, recorded and mixed by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. We are coming to you this week and every week from the iconic County Court of Victoria on the corner of William and Lonsdale Streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years and we are privileged to continue this discussion here today. 